You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. At this time, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 125. Psalm 125. Between 1875 In 1883, a professional thief who called himself Black Bart terrorized the Wells Fargo stage line. From San Francisco to New York, his name became synonymous with the dangers of the Wild West. He accomplished what most bandits only dream of. In just eight years, he robbed 29 different stagecoach crews. And yet, surprisingly, he was able to accomplish all of that without ever firing a shot. He never once had to fire his weapon. He never took a hostage. He was never trailed by the sheriff because he didn't have to. How? It's because he used fear to paralyze his victims. He used fear to paralyze his victims. Fear is a powerful force. It responds to the threat of danger. Mighty men crumble beneath the weight of fear. But the one who trusts in God at all times, in every circumstance, has absolutely nothing to be afraid of. Psalm 125 is here to tell us why. Why does the man who trusts in God have nothing to be afraid of? So please follow along as I read today's text, Psalm 125, a song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Last week I mentioned that these songs of ascent were traveling songs that Jewish pilgrims would sing on their way to Jerusalem. There are 15 of these short little ditties, and they are found right after the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. You know, we have to imagine for a minute. We have to put ourselves in their shoes. So let's do that. Let's just assume for a moment that we don't live in the year 2020. Let's put ourselves back, back into the ancient times. And and let's imagine that you and your family have packed up the wagons and camels and you have enough supplies for the journey. You know that it will take a few days to get there and a few days to get back. You, you gather your family and your friends together, you pray for protection, and you head out into the hot sun towards the Judean highlands. Now imagine that you're on your way, and you've maintained a good pace, you've been clipping along, and then all of a sudden, you turn a corner and the mountains surrounding Jerusalem come into view. The end is in sight, and someone in your caravan begins singing this song, saying, those who trust in the Lord, they are just like that mountain. They are just like that mountain over there. 
And you see those mountains surrounding Jerusalem? Those who trust in the Lord, they are just like a mountain surrounded by mountains. Even when a wicked king sits on the throne, we are safe and we are secure so long as we trust in the Lord. I wish I could physically transport us there to experience the impact of seeing the mountain and hearing this song in response. It had to have been a welcoming sight after a long journey of many dangers and many fears, full of predators at nights, thieves and bandits and marauders all throughout the day, with rough roads, the blistering sun, and all of that one-on-one time with, with extended family. I mean, you have to imagine, it probably felt pretty good to see the end in sight, especially after you've been traveling for so long. Well, Psalm 125 has long been a source of comfort and strength and security for the people of God. It begins with so much encouragement through the first three verses here, verses one through three. And then in verse four, we have a prayer, a prayer where he says, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in heart. And then he closes things out finally with a benediction in verse five. But the entire psalm focused upon this theme of trusting God. Trusting God is the theme. And good things come to those who trust in him no matter what. Whatever circumstance, whatever life throws at them, if you trust in God, then good things are coming your way. So today we're going to look at those things. We're going to look at five benefits for those who trust in the Lord. Five benefits for those who trust in the Lord. When hard times come, when darkness falls, when danger arrives for you, if your trust is in God, these five blessings are yours forever. They are yours forever. You've got nothing to worry about because the God of heaven and earth, who has never told a lie and isn't about to start, has promised you here in this psalm and elsewhere, to faithfully give you all five of these benefits from this time forth and forevermore. So what are they? What are these five benefits? Number one, the first benefit is the believer's permanence. The believer's permanence. He begins the psalm by saying, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. It abides forever. In other words, when hard times come, you won't panic. You won't waste away. You won't collapse within uh, within yourself. Instead, you will remain firmly planted, anchored in place, because God has stabilized you. God has stabilized you. You have been stabilized by God and to God, because trust in God transformed you from a mere man into an immovable mountain. But notice that this is not for all men. Look at how he begins. This is just for those who trust in the Lord. And the implication is that this is not for those who don't trust in the Lord. This word trust in Hebrew, it means to attach yourself to. It means to be confident in, to completely rely upon. It's a word that carries a sense of security because whatever you attach yourself to, that object is what you rely on to get you through. So to trust in the Lord means to commit to the Lord, to rely on the Lord, to turn to the Lord, to cling to the Lord, to depend on the Lord, 
and to believe in the Lord. It means safety and security and stability because you know with total certainty that God is who he says he is and that he will do absolutely everything that he says he will do completely, 100%, without fail. You see, it's that critical step beyond knowing the truth to relying on the truth and then living by the truth. I, I recently picked up a larger biography of John Patton, the famous missionary who shared the gospel in the New Hebrides Islands of the South Pacific. Three months after arriving on the island of Tana, Patton's wife died, followed by their five-week-year-old son, or five-week-old son. For three more years after that, Patton worked alone among the hostile islanders, ignoring their threats and proclaiming Christ before narrowly escaping with his life. Sometime later, he returned to the South Pacific and spent 15 years on another island. Well, one day, as Patton was sitting at home, working away at translating the Gospel of John, he came to John 1.12. And there we find that Greek phrase, pistuo eis, meaning to believe in or to trust in Jesus. And immediately, John had a problem because the islanders were cannibals. I mean, nobody trusted anybody else. They didn't even have a word for trust. So how could he possibly translate a concept for a word that didn't even exist? I mean, let alone exist in their thinking or, or their language. I mean, it, where do you even begin to translate a concept that hasn't previously existed in the mind of the person that you're trying to communicate this truth to? So he asked the native, he said, what am I doing right now? And the man replied, you're sitting at your desk. Patton said, okay. He then raised both feet off of the floor and leaned back into his chair. And he said, how about now? What am I doing now? Well, when the cannibal responded, he used a verb, which means to lean your whole weight upon. So that's the phrase, to lean your whole weight upon. That's the phrase that Patton used to translate this phrase, pastuo ice, each time that it popped up again throughout the Gospel of John. And it's a good translation because it captures this idea to trust in, to lean in with your whole self, and to rely and rest in God. I wonder, what are you relying on today? What are you relying on today? I mean, there are a lot of people out there, they rely on a lot of different things. I mean, for many, it's their job. It's financial security or stability. I mean, those are the things that, that many men rely on. I mean, many lean in with their whole weight and they trust their work. They trust the, the labor of their hands and that paycheck that comes in every other week. But all it takes, all it takes is a flash and all of that can disappear. I mean, many people are discovering that even right now with the severe economic downturn that we're experiencing. I mean, there are many of you who have probably been laid off or have had to take some time off because of the problem that's going on right now with this pandemic. When that happens, our source of trust and our security, when, when that breaks because we placed our trust and we placed our security in our work or in our financial stability, where do we turn? Where do we go? Where should we go? Well, we turn to the Lord. We turn to the God of heaven and earth, because he's not only powerful, he's permanent. So some trust their work, others trust in relationships. I mean, they throw all of their weight 
into their marriage or into their family. And even though that's a good thing, work is a good thing. Marriage and family are all good things. But if we throw our trust into it, if we throw all of our weight into those things, and we don't trust the Lord, we don't, we don't throw everything that we have into trusting him, we have a problem. We have a real problem. Because even that passes away. Whatever good thing you might be trusting in today, work, family, retirement, previous accomplishments, charm, intelligence, wealth, experience, whatever, whatever you might be trusting in today, there is only one trustworthy source of strength and security, and that is the Lord. That is the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. Now, just a word or two about Mount Zion. It's the southwest mountain of seven hills or mountains that are found there on the Judean highlands. It holds the city of Jerusalem, the tabernacle, and then finally the temple. I mean, essentially, Mount Zion is this giant rock in the Middle East. So how are those who trust God like this giant rock? The last half of verse 1 provides two comparisons, saying that those who trust in the Lord are like this rock. They're like this mountain, Mount Zion, in two different ways. First of all, they cannot be moved. And secondly, they abide forever. They abide forever. So first of all, they cannot be moved. Let me ask you this. Have you ever reached your limit while trying to move something? I know that I have several times, especially whenever a good friend asks you to come over and, and you in turn want to be a good friend and, and you want to help them move. And you don't realize that, oh, yeah, that's right. They do own a baby grand piano or they do own this or that or they would be living in a tiny apartment on the third floor or the 20th floor of this building. I mean, there are several times in our lives when we're faced with large obstacles and it's hard for us to move them. And sometimes it just ain't happening. I mean, it can't. I mean, there are some things that are so immovable that when you try to push against them, they don't move. You do. I mean, it's impossible. And God is saying that Mount Zion is like that. And the people who trust in him are like Mount Zion and that you cannot move them. You can't move them. Even with our latest technology, that mountain is going nowhere. And God says, my people, those who rely on me, they become immovable. They become immovable. So when you put your weight into God, you don't get lighter. You get heavier. You're not like that double-minded guy who gets blown and tossed by the waves. You don't fall over from every puff of wind. Instead, you remain fixed, resolute, and steadfast. Because those who trust in God cannot be moved. Secondly, they abide forever. I mean, here we are thousands of years later after this text has been written. Think about that. Thousands of years have passed. Governments have come and gone. Generation after generation after generation after generation after generation after generation have come and gone since this was written. Thousands of years later. Thousands of years later. Mount Zion is still the same. It hasn't changed. It always has been. It hasn't moved. And it hasn't altered at all. It is still Mount Zion. It has weathered storms, wars, millenniums, and more. And yet it just keeps on keeping on. And the same is true for you, believer. The same is true for you. If your confidence is in the Lord, your foundation is stronger than any mountain. I mean, it's stronger than any rock. I mean, you can't be stopped. 
And you won't stop. Because the first benefit for those who trust in God is the believer's permanence. The believer's permanence. That's number one. As the song goes, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Number two, if you trust God, you have the believer's protection. The believer's protection. Look at verse two. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. From this time forth and forevermore. Whereas the first verse compares God's people to Mount Zion. Verse two compares God to the hills surrounding Mount Zion. Remember, Zion is just one mountain surrounded by six other mountains, leaving Jerusalem in a very strong defensible position. An invading army had two choices. They could either go over the mountains, which was exhausting and nearly impossible to do, or they could go through the mountains, bottlenecking their numbers with narrow passes and dangerous terrain while opening themselves up for attack. Either way, The way to Jerusalem was a challenge for those who wanted to overthrow it. The psalmist says God himself has taken a special interest in surrounding his people. Like the mountains surrounded by mountains. That is how God takes care of those who are his. In other words, trusting God yields double protection. Double protection. The picture here is similar to what we see described in John 10. So go ahead and turn there. To John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Throughout this chapter, Jesus is constantly referring to himself as the shepherd of those who trust in him. And those who do trust in him are called his sheep. Let's pick up the narrative here in verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one, are one. So you have this picture of believers who are being protected by Jesus' hand. And then you have this other picture, okay, of, of God protecting them in his hand. So we know that those who belong to Christ, they can't lose their salvation or be stolen from Christ because he's got them. He's holding on to them, protecting them from all enemies. But even better than that, we know that the Son of God could never lose his grip on us. But it is also as though the Father has his hand over the Son's hand. And he's holding him in place. He's holding our salvation, our security in Christ in place so that we cannot be snatched away. We cannot fall away from the Lord. Why? Because we belong to him, and it offers double protection, double protection. Those who trust in God, whose faith is found in Jesus, 
are both stable and secure. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, we are established and then entrenched, settled and then sentinelled or surrounded. As the psalm develops, especially as we get to verse 5, it becomes clear that the psalmist intends to address not only the temporary trials that we have in life, but also the ultimate destiny of those who live by faith. Listen, if these verses describe the permanence and protection of the believer in the day of trial, they definitely describe the day of judgment as well. What does that mean then for the unbeliever? Well, according to Psalm 1, they will not stand in the day of judgment. They, they are like what? They are like chaff scattered on the wind. You see, the unbeliever isn't a mountain. The unbeliever is a molehill, easily moved, here today, gone tomorrow, surrounded by grass. If you are an unbeliever, I hope that you hear this. I hope that you hear what I'm saying today. Because God is not only for those who trust in him, he is against those who don't. And a day is coming quickly when he will judge all men according to their deeds. Only those who have thrown all of their weight into his precious son, Jesus Christ, and trusted, to, trusted in him for salvation. Only those who have put their faith and their trust in him will be saved. Those who have confessed their sins, repented of their sins, and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are the only ones who will escape judgment. So if you have not trusted in the Lord today, believed in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord of all that there is, then surrender your life to his lordship today. Draw near to God. Confess your sins and your rebellions against him. Repent of them. Draw near to him because he draws near to you. Start with reading your Bible. Start with studying God's word. Surround yourself with God's people and good resources, good materials. Get to know this God. Get to know him through his word. Build your life on the solid foundation of the solid rock. And God will make you permanent and protected. As the text says, from this time forth and forevermore. And for those who are already trusting in the Lord, what a blessing this is for us. I mean, we have nothing to be afraid of. Nothing in life or death can separate us from the love of God that is ours through Christ Jesus. I mean, this promise of surrounding protection, it starts now and it continues on forever. It never ends. It never stops. Listen, Christian, nothing will enter your life without first passing through God. I mean, think about that. Nothing will enter your life without first passing through God. I mean, he is a good God and he gives good things to his children. He doesn't hate us. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't enjoy watching us suffer. That's not the God that we serve. And yet we know that we do suffer and we do endure and we are persecuted for his name's sake. We know that all of those things happen to us and we know we've been promised those things even through his word. But we can take comfort in knowing that everything that enters through the mountain pass of God's protection is allowed to enter for our good and for God's glory. Nothing slips past him that we can't handle. God never says, oops, another one slipped past my protection. I really hope they're okay. I hope they survive that one. That's not what God does. That's not what he says. Because nothing slips past God that he doesn't allow to go past him. 
And he has his purposes and his reasons for allowing those things to come into our lives. Instead, he says, my child, I love you. I love you and I will protect you. And when trials and pain and suffering comes, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. You remember when, when Satan went to God in the first chapter of Job, what did he say? What's the first thing that Satan says when he comes to the Lord? You remember God starts the conversation by asking, what do you think of my servant Job? And then the very next thing that comes out of Satan's mouth, he immediately fires back with a question. He says, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge of protection around him in his house and all that he has on every side? See, Satan gets it. He saw it. He said, well, of course Job serves you. Who wouldn't serve you? Look at how you protected him. Look at what you've done for him. You put this hedge of protection around him on every side, over everything that he owns and everyone that he loves. I mean, of course, of course he loves you. You're his protection, and you won't allow me to get to him. That's what he says. And yet, what does God do in response? What does God say? Being the all-powerful God that he is, he doesn't, he doesn't lose control of the situation or give Satan free reign. Instead, he allows Satan to test him and try him for Job's good and for God's glory. So as those permanently established and perfectly entrenched by God himself, we, if we truly trust him, if we truly believe that God is who he says he is and that he has promised all of these wonderful things for us, then why do we grumble and complain when trouble comes? I mean, why do we collapse in fear when the world shakes? Friends, let's not be like other men. Let's be like the mountains, surrounded by mountains, knowing that our God has promised to keep us safe, and he won't allow us to break. He won't allow us to break. That's benefit number two. Those who trust in God have permanence and protection. Next, we have the believer's perseverance. The believer's perseverance, because trust brings perseverance. That's blessing number three. Look at verse three. He says, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Now, the scepter here is simply a symbol of power. So when he says, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, A wicked scepter is just a graphic way of saying a wicked ruler or government or authority. But we need to emphasize that little word, rest, because Israel certainly had his fair share of wicked rulers. I mean, he's certainly not saying here in this psalm, he's not giving a promise saying that if you trust in the Lord, you're never going to have to endure or suffer under the, the hard tyranny of a wicked ruler. That's not what he's saying. If that's what he was saying, then we would have a serious problem. I mean, the Bible has already contradicted itself big time, if that's the truth, because we know that all throughout Israel's history, there were bad leaders, a lot of bad leaders. Now, instead, he's saying a wicked ruler will never rest or remain in power indefinitely. They won't continue to go on undisturbed. The evil decisions that they make will eventually come to an end. After all, it's a common thing for the righteous to live under the burden 
of a wicked government, isn't it? I mean, that's not that's not abnormal throughout the history of Christianity. But here's the good news. It's not permanent. It doesn't last forever. Wicked governments will rise and fall, but God's people, God's people will persevere. Because we are like God's mountain, surrounded by God's mountain. We persevere, we endure forever, but wicked rulers won't. I mean, this is a contrastive parallel to what we saw in verse 2. Whereas those who actively trust God are established and protected forever, the rule of the wicked has an expiration date. I mean, he says that the scepter of the wicked shall not rest on the land. Now, this land, I mean, that is your literal geography as well as your poetic livelihood. But notice, he doesn't say if you trust in the Lord, bad things won't happen to you. If anything, he says the opposite. He says bad things will happen to you, especially if you trust in the Lord. The scepter of wickedness is going to hit you, and it's going to hurt. And when it does, you aren't going to move because God's got you. He's got you surrounded And whatever suffering you endure, it won't last forever. It won't rest in the land for long. It's temporary. We should remember 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, where he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, security doesn't exempt us from trouble. On the contrary, we should expect trouble and then be like the mountains when we face trouble. Even more so, we should rejoice because we know that these trials last only for a little while and that they serve a greater purpose to test our faith Prove we're the real deal and make us more like Christ. In verse 3, the psalmist is saying, these times of trouble and wicked leadership, they won't last forever. And in the last half of the verse, he tells us why. He says, lest the righteous stretch out their hands and do wrong. You see, God knows just how long to keep evil rulers in place. And he determines that length by the believer's perseverance. How long would the wicked rule? Not long enough for the righteous to join in in their sin. What a thought. I mean, think about that for a moment. The scepter of the wicked has rested on the righteous from time to time, and God has used it for his purposes, and yet he chooses to remove those powers in his timing before the righteous can turn from him. He sees how we're doing, and he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. They're getting there. They're getting close to that point. And I will not let them fall. I will not lose my children. So it's time to remove that wicked ruler. I have to ask, what does this look like then? To not trust God and to refuse to believe this truth, this whole truth that that God limits evil and that he preserves his people. What does it look like to to not believe that, to not trust God like we should? Well, how about giving into the pressure and compromising your convictions. That's one way. I mean, how about taking up arms against those wicked authorities, those that have been established by God, by the way? Or how about fretting? And I think this is far more common, fretting and worrying about the next piece of legislature or how increasingly wicked our society is becoming. I think that's very common. 
I think it's something that, that we all can easily fall into. Look, I'm not obsessed, but I do follow politics because of the effect that it has on my livelihood and my family. So please don't make, any, please don't make the mistake of uh, misinterpreting my, my lack of concern for indifference. It's not that I don't care. I certainly try to keep up as much as I can with it because I realize it is important. But I'm not worried about it. I'm not worried. Because there's only so much this perishing world can do to an eternal mountain. I mean, there's only so much. I mean, what if, let's play a few scenarios. What if we lose our tax-exempt status and I can't support my family on a pastor's income? What happens then? Well, I'll probably cry for a while, find another job, and keep on preaching. But what if that becomes illegal? Well, then I'll go to jail and I'll keep on preaching. Well, then what if they, what if they introduce the death penalty for that? What if, what if it costs you your life? Well, come on, that's simple. I'll just die preaching and wait for the rest of you to, to go and do likewise, right? I'll just wait for you. Honestly, those things could happen. They most certainly could happen. We don't know what the future holds, but I'll tell you what won't happen. God won't let the wicked rule long enough or hard enough for us to join in and abandon our faith, for us to, for us to lose this race. God won't allow that to happen. The God who created the universe and controls the universe preserves his people to persevere. Number four, we have seen the believer's permanence, the believer's protection, and the believer's perseverance. The fourth benefit for trusting God is the believer's provision. The believer's provision. Look at verse four. The psalmist prays, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. He says, come on, God, do good by causing good to happen to those who are good, to those who are being tested by their wicked government and are passing the test. He says, those who are upright in their hearts, that means those whose character is is standing up at attention, the morally upright, the righteous, those who are right in the inner man. Do good to those who make personal holiness their priority. In other words, do good, Lord, to those who act like you would want them to act and think like you would want them to think. I mean, that's what this prayer is asking for. It is a prayer for God to do what he has already promised to do for his people. He could have just as easily worded it this way. Oh, Lord, I know that you are good and you do good things for your people. They might not be the things that my naturally wicked heart desires to do, but but when I think the way that you think, And when I act the way that you would want me to act, I know that you will do good for me. I know it. And this is a teaching prayer. The psalmist isn't telling God anything he doesn't already know. And he's not asking God for anything God won't provide. No, he's reminding us through this prayer that God provides for his people. But notice the psalmist doesn't pray this prayer for everyone. I mean, look at the contrast found in the first part of verse 5. He says, But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. You say, what in the world is he talking about? Well, turning aside is common Old Testament language for disloyalty against God. It's disloyalty towards God. It's disobedience. It's turning away from where you should be to where you shouldn't. 
Here are a couple of examples. Deuteronomy 9.12 concerning the golden calf debacle. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here to your people, whom you have brought out from Egypt. They have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Malachi 2.8 But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So, here's what the psalmist is saying. Under the pressure of trouble, there are some who will abandon the faith. There are some who will apostatize. I mean, think of verse 5 as this extremely small miniature book of Hebrews. Whereas Hebrews warns us to hold on. Don't turn back to Judaism. Don't throw away your confession of Christ. Psalm 125 tells us, don't abandon your trust in God. Don't be like those who melt in the furnace of trial. When the heat gets turned on, what do they do? What do the weak do? They turn aside to their crooked ways. They pull off the path of righteousness. They take an exit. They, they get off of God's road and they pull over onto another one. Now, you would think that this must grieve God. And I'm sure it does. He doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked. I mean, after all, he loves everyone. He doesn't want anyone to perish. However, look. Look at how he reacts to the professing believer who refuses to trust in him, folds under the pressure of a sinful culture, and abandons God's blessings for a life of sin. Look at how he reacts. The Lord will lead them away with evildoers. Lead them away with evildoers. What a terrifying truth. God says, you want to leave the path? You want to live like the world today? Then you're going to end up where the world ends up tomorrow. You're no better than the wicked. If you go with them, you will suffer with them. These are the hypocrites, the self-deceived, the it's okay for me to keep on sinning sort of believer. And here's the scary part. He takes it a step further than that. Look at what he says here. I mean, he says that God will actively help you get there. He will actually help you get there actively. I mean, this text isn't vague. God will lead away those who turn aside. He doesn't pull them back. He gives them a push. It doesn't get easier for those who, who leave to return to the Lord. It gets harder. Church, this is a warning. And we need to embrace it. Pretty much every time I preach about apostasy, turning aside, falling away, or even the believer's security, I, someone almost always reaches out to me afterwards with love and concern for an unsaved family member. And that's to be expected. That's okay. That's fine. They say things like, what about my brother? What about my best friend? What about my adult child? And I get it. I get it. I mean, this truth is hard. This is a tough pill to swallow. That not everyone who says to Jesus on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom. In fact, many professing Christians who were baptized, who signed a card, who walked an aisle, who once traveled the path of righteousness, will be led away by the Lord with those who do evil. And yes, that thought should make us sick. It should sicken us. In fact, it should bother us enough to do something about it right here and now. The right response to passages such as these is not to bury our head in the sand 
We shouldn't stick our fingers in our ears and shout, love, 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 love. The gospel in one word is love. I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this. No, we don't block this out. We don't take a Sharpie marker to all the passages in our Bible that highlight this truth. Rather, we pray for the lost. We pray for the lost, that they would turn to the Lord, that they would turn aside from their wicked ways, and that they would walk in the path of righteousness. We pursue the lost with the gospel of Christ, knowing that it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And we take these warnings to heart. That's what we do. Because God uses these warnings of Scripture to preserve His people and push us in the right direction. Again, the psalmist, he doesn't pray this prayer for everyone. He doesn't say, Oh Lord, please do good to all men. Do good to everyone, especially the poor, misunderstood, wicked person. No, that is not what this prayer is about. Instead, this prayer is very specific. It's, Lord, bless those who bless you. Lord, honor those who honor you. And not just those who look good on the outside, those who live for you on the outside. Lord, those who live for you on the inside, those who are morally upright, and heart. The psalmist can can say all of these things because those who completely trust in the Lord love the Lord. They love him. They love his word. They want to obey him. Their trust isn't in themselves, so they don't live for themselves. They live for God. Christian, because he is our confidence, our hope, and our refuge, our desire must always be for more of him. It must be. He alone can satisfy, he alone can shelter, and he alone can provide good to those who are holy. What a good God we serve. I mean, who else, who else could make these claims, let alone follow through with them? And yet here we have a perfectly holy and righteous God who has never lied, who has never reneged on a promise, who has promised these good gifts to his children. But, but if you are one of those who do not belong to him, if your trust isn't in the God of heaven and earth, then you are on your own. You're on your own. The tough gets tougher, and the end of the line is destruction. But if you are one of those who trust in him, he has promised you permanence, protection, perseverance, and provision. Finally, at the very end, we see the believer's peace. The believer's peace. Look at the last line of the psalm. He says, peace be upon Israel. Contrast this final blessing with those who turn away and have no peace. He says, peace, shalom, be upon Israel. This final phrase links back to the opening phrase. Those who trust in the Lord will have peace. Will have peace. If you trust in your circumstances or whatever life brings you, you won't have peace. You will have anxiety. You will have apprehension and worry. But if you trust in the Lord, you will have perfect peace. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And if you do that, if you do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You want your heart and your mind to be guarded and protected by God? 
You want him to keep anxiety out of your life? It's simple. Let your requests be made known to God. Trust in the Lord and he will give you. One of my favorite hymns is Like a River Glorious. The final verse says, Every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. We may trust him fully, all for us to do. Those who trust him wholly find him wholly true. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding as he promised, perfect peace and rest. But before we call it a day, turn with me one last time to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is a very familiar passage, and it fits nicely with what we have already looked at here in Psalm 125. So 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Now we all think that you know, our temptations, our struggles, our trials, the things that we deal with, that they're worse than what everybody else is dealing with? Well, not according to this verse. According to this verse, nothing comes to us that isn't common to everybody else. He goes on to say, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, much like we've already seen in, in Psalm 125. But with the temptation, he will also provide what? A way of escape. And that's where most people stop. That's where I would typically stop in reading this passage. Oh, thank you, Lord. It's so good to know that you will offer a way of escape so I can get away from this. I can get away from the trial, from the temptation, from the trouble. Thank you, Lord, for allowing me an escape hatch to get away from it all. But that's not what the text says. There's more to it. There's a comma there. What comes after the comma? He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it, that you might be able to endure it. Wait a minute. God doesn't provide me a way of escape for me to get away from the temptation? This isn't an escape hatch where where God gets me out and the trouble is over? No, instead he provides the escape so that we may endure the temptation. What does that mean? It means staying under temptation and not sinning. That's what it means to stay under temptation and not sin. So we have this promise in both the New Testament as well as in the Old, that those who trust in God will endure to the end. Friend, don't believe in yourself. Don't rely upon others. And don't depend on your circumstances. Trust in God. Trust in Him. Do you want permanence? Do you want protection? Do you want perseverance? Do you want provision? Do you want peace? Pursue total holiness, both within and without, and trust in the Lord at all times, in every circumstance. And my friend, you will be like a mountain, surrounded by mountains. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this truth. Thank you for your protection. Thank you for your permanence, for the persevering power of trust in you. Thank you, Lord, even for this prayer, for your provision, and for the perfect peace that comes from trusting in you and you alone. Lord, I pray that you would 
burn these truths into our brains and into our hearts, that you would hardwire them into our thinking. Lord, that we would never wander away from them, that we would not be caught to the left or to the right, that we wouldn't ever turn aside from your righteous path. Lord, I pray that we'd be men and women of character, that you would build within ourselves an uprightness of heart. Lord, we know that no man is good in and of himself. Lord, the only goodness we have is just a mere reflection of your goodness and who you are and what you have done. God, I pray that you would continue to work in the lives of men and women, that you would continue to call us. First of all, if there's anyone who is not saved, there's anyone who has not placed their faith and their trust completely in you, who has not leaned in with all of their weight, I pray, Lord, that you would call them today. I pray that you would lift the blinders off of their eyes, that you would unstop their ears, that they would be able to perceive and understand with their minds. I pray that they would see the gospel, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to the earth, and he lived a perfect life, and he died in our place through a sinner's death on the cross. And that anyone who would believe and trust in him, who would repent of their sins and follow Christ, anyone who would deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow him, that person would be saved. Lord, I pray that you would save men and women, even today. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to make us like mountains. Lord, I pray that you would just pour cement into our faith. Lord, that we would not be moved, that we would abide with you forever that we would take these truths and own them to our very core, and that we would live in light of them all of our days, from this day forth and forevermore. Again, we love you so much, and we thank you for all that you have done and all that you do. In your name, amen.